Turn to Revelation chapter 7. Uh, this morning, I want to start our message with a little something different. I want us to look at some optical illusions. Yes, some optical illusions. And these are a specific kind of illusion. Um, it's a picture. It's called an ambiguous picture illusion. It's fancy word for saying this is a picture that when you look at it, you see two different things, okay? Um, but you've seen some of these before. They go back a long time. So let me show you this first one on the screen, and you tell me what you see. Do you see, first, a vase or two faces? Think about it. All right, if you saw a vase first, raise your hand. <laughs> if you saw two vases first, or two faces, sorry, raise your hand. Okay, great. Well, you know, there's actually a way, depending on what you saw first, to determine your IQ. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but I got a couple more. Let me, let me show you some other fun ones. These are some classic ones. All right, what do you see here, a rabbit or a duck? All right, if you see rabbit, raise your hand. Okay, you see duck. Wow, pretty even. Isn't that amazing? Can you see both? Are you able to see both? Okay, wasn't too bad, too bad. Um, that just means you're really smart. Um, we got another one. Check out this one. I did not title this, but it's actually called My Wife or My Mother-in-Law. Can you, see, <laughs> can you see both? Can you see the wife and the mother-in-law? How many of you saw the, the young wife first? And how many of you saw the uh, lovely mother-in-law <laughs> You saw, can you see both? Are you able to? It's hard. It's a little harder. This one's a little harder. But yeah, one more. I'm going to show you one more. And this one's amazing because it's an actual picture that happened a few years ago. Do you all remember this? It was a huge internet sensation. People got so mad. Um, my wife, she almost killed me. No. Do you see a dress that is black and blue or white and gold? If you see black and blue, raise your hand. Okay, you're right because you agree with me. If you see white and gold, raise your hand. Isn't that amazing? Uh, there's some kind of trick to it. It's an actual picture. It's a real dress, and yet people see different things. I, I love these illusions. It's so much fun to, to look at something. It's amazing that two people can see the exact same picture and yet see two totally different things. And, and here's my, my point this morning. There, there is a point to the madness. My point is that sometimes this happens with the Bible. There are times when faithful, Jesus-loving Christians look at the same book and the same verse and yet come to two different conclusions. And, and no, my analogy is not perfect because the Bible is not an optical illusion. And the Bible does not have different meanings for different people. Yes, it can be applied differently to our different life circumstances, but the meaning of the Bible is what the original author intended it to be. The Bible is truth, and so there's only one true meaning. And that means when we disagree, one of us is going to be wrong and one of us is going to be right. But often, it's difficult to know which one of us that is. Except we usually always think we're right. <laughs> but good Christians disagree on things in the Bible. And they have for as long as Christians have existed. I'm, I'm sure if we went around the room and I asked you, there'd be some things that you and I might disagree on. In fact, it's a running joke that you're more likely to find Bigfoot than you are to find two Baptists who agree on everything. So, what do we do when we disagree? 
Well, there's this idea that I came across a few years ago that I've found to be so helpful. It's, it's called theological triage. Think about that word triage. That term comes from the medical field. It's the process of determining the order in which people are treated based on the urgency of their condition. Did I get that right, medical people? Close enough. My wife, uh, she's an ER nurse. Uh, She works for Advent Health, and triage is a big part of her job. When someone comes into the ER, the first thing they do is they get triaged to determine the seriousness of their condition. So if I come in with a toothache and you come in with chest pain, who's going to get seen first? You are, right? That's how it works. So theological triage is the process of determining which of our beliefs are most essential or most urgent. And this process helps us to understand how we can disagree and debate and defend what we believe. Now, in this framework that somebody way smarter than me came up with, all of our beliefs fall into three levels. First level beliefs are the things that we consider essential to the Christian faith. These are doctrines that we cannot disagree on and call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. These are beliefs like the person and work of Jesus, the Trinity, right? These are things we've got to agree on. They are absolutely essential. Then you have second level beliefs. These are those things we can disagree on and still be brothers and sisters in Christ, but it would be difficult for us to be a part of the same local church. A good example of second-level belief is the doctrine of baptism. I have some good friends that are Presbyterian, and they love the Lord, and there's no doubt they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. But because of our views on baptism and how much they differ, it would be difficult for us to be a part of the same church. So these are beliefs that affect practice and function in church. Then there are third level beliefs. These are the things that we can agree on and not only be brothers and sisters in Christ, but we can also be a part of the same church and be in the same Sunday school class and worship on the same pew. Third level beliefs are those beliefs that are not as clear in the Bible or as essential to preserving the faith. That means when it comes to these third level beliefs, we hold them more loosely and with humility. It's not that third level doctrines are unimportant. Everything the Bible teaches is important. So we can argue and debate and try to persuade one another that we're right. But at the end of the day... We do so with love and understanding, knowing that these are things it's okay to disagree on. Now, I share this with you this morning because as we move through Revelation, much of what we will encounter are third level. All right, Jesus coming back, that is essential. <laughs> like We've got to agree on that. We're not going to disagree there. But the timing of certain events and and this symbol and what this means and what this verse means, those are things that it's okay for us to debate and to discuss and agree to disagree without shouting, you heretic. Y'all wouldn't do that. So this morning, we're going to look at one of those chapters where many good and faithful Christians look and they see two different things. Just like the ambiguous illusions we looked at, people see it differently. 
And again, that doesn't mean there isn't a right answer. It is. There is. And it doesn't mean it's not important. It is. But we should study for ourselves. Come to our own conclusions. And then hold them loosely, knowing that these are things it's okay to disagree on. The chapter I'm talking about is Revelation chapter 7. And it's important, as we do each week, to remember you know, where we've been so far in this book. Remember, Revelation was written to the seven churches in the first century. We saw those at the beginning of the book. And then John was taken up to heaven in a vision. And he saw God seated on his throne and the Lamb who was worthy to open the scrolls. Last week, we saw the Lamb open the first six scrolls, and boy, that was fun. Uh, Chaos came on the earth, and war, and famine, and the wrath of God. And we talked about how those seals correspond to what Jesus said in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. We said these events are not the end, but they're birth pains that signal that the end is coming. And, And you can just imagine, as these first century believers read this letter for the first time, how they must have felt. A little scared, a little nervous. We might feel the same way when we read it. It's a little unnerving to think about the end. And it's even especially concerning, if you believe like I do, that the church will be present on the earth during the tribulation. That's why I heard a pastor say one time, every Christian we pray for pre-tribulation rapture and we prepare for post, Right? So if you believe like I do that we're going to be here for this, it kind of begs the question, what is going to happen to us? What does this mean for us? All this craziness is going on. Where are we going to be? Well, I believe God is answering that exact question for us in Revelation chapter 7 by giving John a vision of the people of God and what lies in store for them. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to read this chapter in its entirety. I'm going to make an argument for my view while you can sit there and and think all the ways that I'm wrong. And then we're going to see two things that this passage is teaching us today. So let's look now at Revelation chapter 7. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? Chapter 7 verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. I need to take a breath. 
Verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with, it, with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. You can be seated. Here in this chapter, we have two visions of two groups of people, and the key debate of this passage revolves around this question. Who are the 144,000 people in the first vision, and how do they relate to the great multitude in the second vision? And faithful Christians who love the Lord Jesus and who believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God have historically disagreed and interpreted this chapter in one of two ways. There are those who believe the church has already been raptured at this point in the timeline. So they view the 144,000 as ethnic Jews who have become Christians during the tribulation. They envision this great revival taking place where Jewish people are coming to faith in Christ during that seven-year period. Then there are those who believe the church will not be raptured until after the tribulation, such as myself. We view the 144,000 as being a symbolic number representing all the people of God alive during the tribulation, Jews, Gentiles, everyone who follows Jesus. I believe these two visions are the same group of people from two different perspectives. The 144,000 being the people of God from an earthly perspective when they're about to go into the tribulation, and the great multitude being the people of God from a heavenly perspective after they've come out of the tribulation. So, so those are the two differing views, and, and to be totally fair, they both have good evidence. Like, I, I know people who believe both of these ways, but let me give you six quick reasons, I know, Six reasons that I believe the 144,000 represent all the people of God and not just ethnic Jews. Here's the first reason. Number one, the 144,000 are called the servants of God. Every time you see that phrase in the book of Revelation, it always refers to all of the redeemed people of God. It's never used to designate like a specific ethnic group of Jews who are being saved during the tribulation. Here's the second reason. This image of God sealing people on their forehead, that's the same imagery we find in Ezekiel chapter 9 in the Old Testament. In that, in that story, 
that seal on the forehead does not represent people from a specific ethnicity or from a specific group, but it represents people who have not bowed to idols but who have stayed true to God. So it's for all people. Reason number three. We see this group of 144,000 one more time in Revelation chapter 14. And in that chapter, there's nothing said about them being ethnic Jews, but instead they're called people who have been redeemed by God. Again, this seems to indicate that they are all the people of God on the earth during this time. Well, hang on. So are you saying that there will only be 144,000 Christians on the earth during the tribulation? Uh, If you're familiar, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses take this passage to believe that there are only 144,000 Christians, period, who are going to be saved. That would be really nerve-wracking. But is that what you're saying? Well, this leads me to reason number four. I believe the 144,000 is a symbolic number, as numbers in Revelation often are. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. Somebody good at math may want to double check that. But the the number 12, it represents the people of God. Think about this. 12 tribes of Israel times the 12 apostles. That's the entirety of God's people. And then we have this number 1,000. Number 1,000 in the Bible represents a large number. Think about the other times we hear about that number 1,000. It's it's always symbolic. For example, the Bible says that God owns the cattle on how many hills? thousand hills, right? He's not saying that when you get to the 1,001st hill, no, those aren't God's. No, that's not the point, right? Or here's another one. Better is one day in God's courts than how many elsewhere? Than a thousand elsewhere. Does that mean being with God is only better until you get to the thousand first day and then you might as well go somewhere else? No. We understand when we see that number of thousand, that's a way to describe a really big number. So 144,000, this is a huge group of people, and they are all of God's people in this time. But hang on, (laughs) what about these tribes? I mean, aren't those Jewish tribes? Hey, I know my Old Testament. Well, that leads me to reason number five. The way these tribes are ordered, it's very different. It's totally unique from anything we see in the Old Testament. Think about it, John, he would have known the Old Testament front and back, and yet he doesn't list the tribes in any of the ways they do in the Old Testament. This ordering, it's unique for a couple reasons. First off, it begins with the tribe of Judah. Why would he do that? Well, remember, who came from the tribe of Judah? Jesus did, right? So it's it's showing that these are people who follow Jesus. Second, the tribe Levi is listed, which was very uncommon in the Old Testament. And then third, they leave out the tribe of Dan. How can this be ethnic Israel when they're leaving out some of ethnic Israel? But if this is the people of God, then why does John hear them listed as tribes of Israel? Well, that brings us to number six. So reason number six, in the New Testament, The church is called the new Israel. A few examples. In in Romans 2, 28 through 29, Paul says a Jew is not a Jew outwardly because of their ethnicity, but they are a Jew inwardly if they follow Christ. Galatians 6, 16, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. 
James, when he wrote his letter, he addressed it to Christians, but he says that he is addressing it to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Peter, in his letter, he, he called the church God's chosen people, and he used this language that referred to Israel. John himself told us, if you remember in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, that the Jews living in his day were not true Jews, but they were from the synagogue of Satan. So John is simply building on these ideas by referring to all of God's people as being the true fulfillment of Israel. Now, I know that was a lot of information, and some of you are thinking, I didn't care to know any of that. (laughs) But I just want you to see that I'm not making this stuff up, okay? You know, I think part of my job is kind of hired me to study God's word. To study, and, and this is where I believe the evidence leads us. It points to the idea that these groups of people in chapter 7, these are followers of Jesus. These are people who are living during the last age. And here's what that means this might be us. This might be the next generation of Christians. We don't know. But this, this is our people, this is the people of God. So, what does this teach us? What is this saying to us today? Well, there's two things. Here's the first. This chapter tells us that the people of God can, number one, look to God's protection. They killed the slides to see how well you're taking notes, okay? So look to God's protection. Remember, chapter 6 ended with this question. There was all these horrible things happening, and people are running for the hills, and they're hiding. And they say this, this last question at chapter 6, it says, who can stand? Chapter 7 is God's answer to that question. This chapter tells us that no matter what happens, God's people will stand. God will protect his people. Look back at the first part with me at, at, at chapter 7. John sees four angels holding back the four winds of the earth, which represents this coming destruction. And another angel cries out and he says, hey, 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 wait up. He says, not yet. Don't let those wind go until we mark our people. This idea of sealing was to mark someone or something. It's like a a signature. It's like when you write your name on something to claim it as yours. You remember those old seals and wax on letters. Did any of you guys grow up in in a big family? Um, if you grew up in a big family like I did, I had four sisters, then, then you know that when you put something in the, in the refrigerator that was yours, what did you do? You write your name on it. Right? I, I did that because I did not want my four sisters to eat it. So I was saying, hey, keep your hands off. That's mine. Didn't always work, but I tried. See, that's what God is doing By sealing his people, he's declaring ownership over them. And when you own something, you will protect it. And so he puts their name, his name, on their foreheads. That's a little weird. (laughs) Does this mean that in the end times, Christians are going to walk around with tattoos on their foreheads? Some of your parents would freak out. As cool as it would be for all of us to have matching tattoos... BVBC, Ridgeview Campus. (laughs) I don't think this is a literal mark or seal. I believe this is a spiritual seal, as Paul talks about believers being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Spiritually, 
were set apart for the protection of God. Now, what kind of protection is this? Well, there's going to be two kinds of chaos going on during the tribulation. There's going to be God's judgment being poured out on people, and there's going to be Satan's persecution of the church. And this protection that the seal gives us is protection from God's judgment, but it's not necessarily protection from Satan's persecution. We said last week, Christians right now are dying for their faith, and this is going to increase as we get to the end. So this seal does not guarantee our physical protection. And this is true for us now. As followers of Jesus, we're not guaranteed a physically comfortable, safe, and healthy life. But isn't it interesting that we spend so much of our time praying and worrying about those things? And I'm speaking for me, man. I spend so much time praying for God to protect my family and protect them from sickness and protect them while traveling and protect my wife at work and protect my kids at daycare. And, of course, we can pray for those things. We should pray for those things. It's not bad, and God will answer those prayers. But it's important to know that God has a greater priority than protecting us physically. The Apostle Paul understood that when he talked about being jailed and whipped and beaten, stoned. God's greatest priority for you, what he wants most for your life, is for you to be formed into the image of his son Jesus. And that may require some physical suffering along the way. Early Christians, they understood this. They understood it was a part of the deal. We we may come to understand that one day. God has not promised to always protect us physically and keep us safe and healthy. But his seal of protection in Revelation is a protection from his judgment. Yes, Satan is going to persecute the church. Believers are going to suffer and some even die. But we cannot be touched spiritually. We will not face God's judgment and wrath. We're going to be protected in the midst of it. Just like we see in the Bible, like Noah and his family on the ark right in the middle of the flood. Just like the Israelites who were in Egypt when all the plagues were taking place, they weren't touched. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No matter what comes our way, God will protect us spiritually. We will not be condemned. Nothing and no one can change who we are in Christ and our place with him. So as God's judgment falls on the world and everybody's freaking out, we don't need to be afraid. We have the seal of God's protection. And yeah, we may face persecution. But nothing that happens in this life can change our standing in the next one. And that's what we see in the second vision of chapter 7. Great multitude shows us that the people of God, number two, can look to God's promise. An interesting difference between how John encounters these two visions is it's similar to the way that happened in chapter 5. You'll remember John hears a lion, but he sees Jesus as a lamb. In this chapter, John hears about 144,000, but then he sees a great multitude. That's another reason I believe these two groups are the same groups of people. This, this great multitude, it says it's, it's beyond, neighbor, uh, beyond number. They're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. 
which tells us that the people of God in heaven, it's going to be multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic. People are going to be praising together from all over the world, which is going to be so awesome. And there's going to be angels and the elders and the four living creatures, and they're crying out, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. But then there's a little aside. An elder asked John a question. He says, hey, hey, who are these people? He's not asking because he doesn't know. But he's trying to help John connect the dots of what's going on here. So the elder tells him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are the followers of Jesus that followed him all the way, even in the darkest time in human history. Even though some of them gave their very lives for Jesus, they persevered, and now they're standing before God. He says this this multitude, they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Think about that. How do you wash a robe in blood and it comes out white? Again, this is figurative language pointing to the idea that these people are totally spotless because of the blood of Jesus. And man, like this is this is so huge because we're not spotless. My robe is not clean. My robe is filthy of all the things that I've done in my life, all the sin. Our robes are covered in filth, but here's the key. When Jesus died, he took our filthy robes and he put them on himself on the cross. And in exchange, he gave us his perfectly white robe washed in the blood of the Lamb. So now when we stand before God, God does not see how filthy and dirty we are, but God sees us as his spotless sons and daughters. Man, we're we're forgiven in the presence of God because of Jesus we wear white robes. And here's what else is said about this multitude. I just want to read this again. Look at verse 15 through 17. This is so good. It says, Therefore, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this amazing promise, it's not just true for this great multitude, but this is true for us. This is true for all of us who know Jesus. And this is the promise and hope that we look to that one day we will be in the presence of our Heavenly Father forever. As I wrote this sermon, I I couldn't help but think about being a father to my son. He's going to be one years old next week. Next month. And when you think about it from that perspective, I know many of you as parents, as as grandparents, man, it becomes real. Like, I want to shelter my son. I want to protect him. I want to keep him from from pain. When when he's hungry, we we feed him. When we hear him crying in the night, my wife and I, we we pick him up, we hold him, we, we wipe the tears from his eyes. Man, if we as imperfect parents can give those things to our children, then how much 
greater will it be to receive these things from our perfect Father. Like, like no matter what happens in this life, no matter what tribulations and trials come, one day we will be sheltered in his presence forever. Nothing more will be able to harm us or touch us or take us away from him. All of our needs will be satisfied. All the emptiness and longings we feel in this life will be complete. And he will wipe the tears right off your cheek because there won't be a single reason to be sad. No more pain. No more suffering. We'll be home forever. That is the promise that we can look to as the people of God. Is that your promise? Are you a part of the people of God? To be a part of God's people, it's not about going to church. It's not about calling yourself a Christian. It's not about memorizing the Bible or keeping the rules or being a good person or knowing the right answers. To become a part of God's family, there's only one way. And that's by giving your life to Jesus. And here's the amazing thing, you don't have to earn it. When my wife and I had our son in February, we didn't say, all right, prove yourself, then you can be our son. <laughs> no, he was mine. I love him because he's mine. And that's how it is when you become a follower of Jesus. You give him your life, you come as you are, and he says, I love you because you're mine. Is that true for you? Have you given your life to Jesus? Or maybe you're already a follower of Jesus. Is this where you fix your eyes? Is this where you look each day? I mean, think about the world. They say, hey, look at this and look here and whoa, what about this? And you should be angry about that and think about this. And can you believe that and look here and look there? And Jesus says, no, look here. This is where we fix our eyes. This is where our identity lies. This is who we are. And when you get this, all that other stuff will be in its place. So regardless of how you interpret something that is incredibly difficult, <laughs> our hope is the same. As the people of God, we have the protection of God and we have the promise of God. And that means we'll be with him forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.